to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other one. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear the gospel, hear your word, your Holy Spirit, open it up to us that we would have understanding, your Holy Spirit empower us so that we would leave here transformed by interacting with your words of grace and mercy. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Some of the readings that I have done recently, uh, I came across uh, what I thought anyway was a very astute observation. It's painting now... I'm going to tell you, it's painting with a broad brush, but I think that these words might resonate with you a little bit. The author noted in so many words that the world in which we live is permissive of all sorts of behavior, permissive of all sorts of ways and being and doing, remarkably permissive, astoundingly permissive even. Embarrassingly permissive, perhaps, many times. And yet, this same world that's so permissive is devoid of mercy. Devoid of mercy. Do whatever you want. Say whatever you want. At some point, you will be judged for it. And when you are, there will be no mercy, just judgment and rejection. Mercy in its purest form is the unique gift that God can give, that God gives to the church and that the church in turn can give to the world. This is a parable about mercy. May God give us ears to hear. But before we look at the parable, let's zoom out a little bit, as we've been doing lately in our homilies in Luke's gospel. Let's zoom out a little bit and remember that this is the first time in Luke's gospel that we've heard about mercy. Mercy figures prominently in Luke's gospel as a clear marker of how to recognize God at work in God's people. Be merciful just as your father is merciful, says Jesus earlier in Luke, when he's framing up the entirety, really the entirety of what all of his mission is going to be about. 
it comes in the context of chapter 6, which is often referred to as Luke's Sermon on the Mount. I'll read you a few verses just to pick up that phrase in its context. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive payment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. Instead, love your enemies, (coughs) do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. It's kind of like Jesus is saying that (coughs) when it comes to recognizing God's work in the world, really all comes down to mercy because mercy shows the depths of God's love in a way that is uniquely Christ-like, uniquely Christ-like because Christ loves even his enemies. Now, our parable this morning shows us something, well, it shows us a lot of things that are really important, one of which is that it shows us what posture is consistent with God's delight in showing mercy. And it is revealed to us in the sharpest of contrasts when set side by side against a posture that opposes God's mercy. In order to to feel and see the contrast for all it's worth, we need to use our imagination a bit. The parable this morning invites us to imagine Now, this is one of those things where do this and then forget about it because it's, you know, kind of a necessary thing, what I'm asking you to do, but but you don't want to be thinking about this imaginary person all the time. Um, Imagine a person that's the worst sort of person you can think of. They're dishonest, maybe a little bit mean, untrustworthy. Not at all someone who you would ever want in your social company. And then think of someone who you think is awesome, upright, a person who you hope would grace your home as a guest, a person who you would promote to a leader in the church. Then think of the two of them going to church on the same day. The latter praying a prayer a little bit like our Pharisee in the parable, The former, beating his chest and begging God to show mercy, if you can work your imagination in that way, you might just be able to get into the same frame of mind of those in the first century in Jesus' audience when Jesus did the big reveal and said that the tax collector was the one who God regarded as being in the right. They would have been aghast, probably audibly. They would have been like, what? Wait a minute, what did he say? He couldn't have just said that. That kind of thing, that kind of reaction. 
This is one of those gotcha parables. Gotcha in the sense that the audience just couldn't have seen it coming. That guy, the tax collector, by the way, the tax collectors were so reviled and, so, and, and regarded as, as outsiders to the, to the religious community, certainly the, those who, who took God's law seriously, um, because um, they had colluded with the Roman government. They had, they had bought areas, like districts, so to speak, from the Roman government, they had, had bought the right to tax people. And they had figured out a way to tax people in such a way that <clears throat> they had elevated their taxes so that they could skim off the top, enrich themselves, and still pay Rome what they owed Rome. These people were reviled. He's not supposed to be the one who's right in this parable, but he is. Why? Why is he right? Why is he declared righteous? Because his prayer tells the truth about God. God delights in showing mercy to anyone and to everyone. The Pharisee's prayer does not tell the truth about God. Because God refuses to be used to prop up a human agenda or a human show of pride and self-righteousness. Now there is plenty of application right on the surface. And we shouldn't gloss over any of it. And all of it touches on themes common to the Gospel of Luke and to other Gospels for that matter. If you think you're presentable before God on your own resume, so to speak, you made a grave error and you're injuring your soul. You're closing yourself off to God's judgment. God's judgment is the dynamic that can help us know ourselves better, enable important moments of repentance, all of which in turn leads to our fullness of life, of us becoming more of who we were always meant to be. Now, the part of you and me that resists God's judgment, well, that's the puniest version of ourselves. The part of us that is happiest playing it close to the vest, not showing any vulnerability or weakness. The self-sufficient you and me that we imagine impresses others, but if it impresses others, it only does so because we've created a whole micro-community of people around us who are afraid to be honest with God and each other about how challenging it is to be the loving people God created us to be. Well, all of that's a personal application, and, and I think it's an important one. And it's worth pondering in the week that comes, in what way are we a little bit like this Pharisee not really opening ourselves to God's judgment, being satisfied with ourselves and our own righteousness. But there's a bigger picture application that I really think is worth making. And that bigger picture application is the community aspect. Now remember, Luke leading up to this, leading up to this meaning where we are in the Gospel of Luke, has spent a lot of time painting a picture of the kind of community that the kingdom of God brings to pass. 
It's a community with all the wrong people starring or playing starring roles, as we said. The outsiders, the misfits, those at the margin, those regarded as too sinful to be in the company of the self-defined righteous. This parable sits within that broader context of Luke's picture of the kingdom. The problem with the posture of the Pharisee is not only the consequences it has for one person, him, but for his community and really for the whole world. Miroslav Voff has said that inscribed on the very heart of God's grace is the rule that we can be its recipients only if we do not resist being made into its agents. What happens to us must be done by us. This is particularly apropos to our conversation about mercy and this parable. The Pharisee is not able to be mercy's agent because the Pharisee does not want mercy. He wants God to rubber stamp his life, his actions, his choices as holy, good, and righteous. His inability to pass along mercy is due to the fact that he is not open to receiving it. And that reality is on terrible display here in the way that he regards the tax collector. He's like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He doesn't want mercy when he sees it. He doesn't want the world to work that way. Remember the elder brother? He would have excluded his brother just as the Pharisee has excluded the tax collector. The Pharisee. What about the Pharisee? Now remember, parables are, are, are fiction. They are, as we noted before, drawing on, on uh, the wisdom of uh, Klein Snodgrass and others uh, who study parables a lot. Parables are imaginary gardens, but real toads in them. Imaginary gardens with real toads in them. And this Pharisee, is he a toad? A real toad? The temptation is to demonize the Pharisee. That's, that's what I'm trying to point out. How should we think about the Pharisee? I think we should be hopeful. I think we should be hopeful. Zooming out again, I'm going to show you the reason why I think we should be hopeful. Remember, just as the parable of the prodigal son, you know, the, the father stands against the elder brother excluding the younger brother. The elder brother comes and characterizes his, his brother, his younger brother, as this son of yours. And then the father says, no, 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 this brother of yours has come home. That's a parable that's open to hope of reconciliation for the elder brother, for the younger brother, for the whole family, okay? And then just as we talked about the parable, the very scary parable of, of the rich man and Lazarus, our takeaway from that was that this is not about eternal damnation of anyone, uh, certainly not uh, the fictitious rich person in the parable, but it is a parable of a sobering parable about judgment. And, and God judges the rich man in the parable so that he might 
turn and flourish as God intends him to flourish and bless the poor instead of being selfish towards the poor. Again, even that parable that is very scary is not closed off from hope, but open to hope. And this is, of course, you know, what the gospel is all about, is about looking at every situation in life and realizing that if Jesus is risen from the dead, we can be hopeful, and we should be hopeful. It doesn't preclude judgment. Judgment is part of hope. But the hope has to be there. It's a judgment with hope. You know, there's a certain way of reading the preface to the parable. The preface to the parable... Um, Preface the parable, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, and regarded others with contempt. There's a certain way of reading that that, that tilts towards uh, language of condemnation. I think it's more consistent with the gospel to read that preface as compassionate concern. Jesus doesn't want the fictitious Pharisee who stands for so much of how many of us are doesn't want that person who recognizes in themselves in this parable to feel hopeless or damned, but rather judged, judged by the God that wants them to receive mercy and to pass it on. God will always confront that part of us that resists begging for mercy and leans towards self-righteousness self-assuredness. He will always oppose that and confront us in order to show us mercy so that not only will we experience God's mercy as individual people, but by experiencing it, we will be able to image God and God's kingdom to a world that is dying to marinate in God's mercy. But they can't name it. When people see God's mercy they find it beautiful and they want it how do they get it that's why we're here we can name it we can live it and we have been summoned by our creator and redeemer to do just that our gift to the world is not our certainty that we know the truth and our certainty about how to apply that truth in every complex situation in life. Our gift to the world is not our moral achievements, even when they're really great. Our gift to the world is to name our brokenness, our fragility, and live that out in a community that values humility over self-assuredness. That's our gift to the world. Only in this way of living, feeling, and thinking can we rightly image the God who shows justice and power by showing mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.